Hey, what's up everyone? It's Chris Pugh here, your host slash your boy from the Noise Podcast. Just want to give you a quick speech before episode 46 gets underway, as you would have seen from its title. This episode is dedicated to Pantera's vulgar display of power as it comes in number 7 on our greatest metal album of all time list, which I hope you've been enjoying listening to as me and Sam, as much as me and Sam have enjoyed talking about. Now, I hope you would agree that me and Sam have always been just two guys that try and give you as high quality music journalism as we possibly can do and sometimes that forces me and Sam to separate art from the artist which we have had to do in this case. We absolutely do not agree with some of the stances that some band members of Pantera have given regarding racism for the last five to ten years and possibly even further than that because I don't have every single piece of knowledge regarding the band on this issue but most importantly I must make it absolutely clear that me and Sam do not accept racism or any form of bigotry in any form whatsoever however we couldn't possibly leave out this record in this list that Sam has so brilliantly curated for you this album absolutely did pave the way and change metal for decades and decades to come and actually you can still feel the ripple effect of the record to this day so we couldn't possibly leave the album out of the list with that said sometimes it is difficult uh, for me and sam to talk about things where we are so against some of the things that the artist stands for but regardless in this situation we've separated art from the artist we have given you a full rundown of the greatness of the record which i personally believe is one of the greatest album chats that me and sam have ever done and i really hope you enjoy listening to it to make it absolutely clear once again me and sam do not stand for any form of racism however we had to include this album in the list to be able to consider ourselves as music journalists in the now I won't keep you waiting any longer. I really hope you enjoy the episode. It's something that me and Sam put a lot of effort into, as we always do on our Noise Podcast episodes. Episode 46 is going to get underway right now. Pantera's Vulgar Display of Power and the new Biffy Clara album, a celebration of endings under review as well. Hope you enjoy What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 46 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise.co.uk and sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and I'm joined, as ever, by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? I am very well, sir. How about yourself? I'm tremendous, man. You saw the owner extraordinaire of Noise.co.uk, Jack Holloway, on, indeed. On, on this weekend, just gone. How is he? He's well. He's well. He's um. He's a proper family man now, which is which is very reassuring to see. It's it's nice to flit away from mine and your lifestyle, where we're just drunkenly arguing about Metallica albums <laughs> yeah. in back in backlit pubs, and then go to see Jack, who's got like a child and like um like a loving sort of family group constantly surrounding him. It was it was it was beautiful. It was really really nice. His daughters. Um, gorgeous and growing up, and it was just it was just a really nice um, experience to go and see him down there in Cardiff. It was really lovely. 
I can't wait till the end of the year where we can hopefully go back down there and do another album of the year show. I mean, we're going to do an album mm-hmm. of the year show regardless, but it would be great to go down to Cardiff and fill and film it there again and see Jack again because I think uh, there's another there's another Chris meet in the offing. I think there. I think that'd be lovely. Yeah, I think there's um, there's lots of opportunities for us to be able to go down hopefully in a few months and we could re-record some of the lovely studios they have down there and obviously all get together again. It'd be wonderful. We are a weekly rock and metal podcast available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, slash Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, we will be available on there. Uh, it would be great if wherever you're listening to us, first of all, thank you. And secondly, if you could like the video, slash subscribe to us on whatever platform that you're using, that would be amazing. Uh, on the last Noise Podcast episode, we ran through the news. Our breaking artist was Sira, and we did album reviews on Kill the Lights, The Sinner, and Creeper's Sex, Death, and the Infinite Void. As you would have seen, from the title of this episode, we have hit number seven on our greatest metal album of all time list, and that enters Pantera's vulgar display of power. And also, we've got a review of the new Biffy Clara album, A Celebration of Endings. So this episode covers one of my favourite bands of all time, and Pantera. Did you like that, Sam? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> no, I am joking. I, I mean, I do love Biffy Clara, but I probably wouldn't put them in my, in my favourite list. However, Pantera absolutely are one of my favourite bands of all time. And Vulgar's Five Power is one of my favourite records of all time. So, man, absolutely beyond stoked to be talking about that album in full with you. Just before we do get into that album, though, Sam, obviously mm. Ride the Lightning came in at number nine. Yes. And Slipknot's self-titled album would have been number eight. However, on their 25th anniversary of the self-titled album, we already did the podcast fully exploring our thoughts, history behind the record, and a little internet that people wouldn't have already been aware of. So there was no need for us to do another episode on it again. And for those who did miss that, I will put the, um, the actual link to that specific episode in the description of the video, because... I, I do think that was one of our better podcasts that we've ever done, to be honest, Sam, that specific episode. I heard loads of great feedback on that one. Yeah, yeah, it was really, really nice. It was um, the 20th anniversary for last year, wasn't it? It was really, really good. Oh, 20, um, I said 25th, no, 20th, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it was, it was a terrific podcast about one of the, the more impactful albums that we've ever had in, in the history of metal. We managed to dive into um, the incredible context that surrounded it and how those guys came together and the musical sound and some stories from the studio but yeah um it is for me as i said on the podcast then that slipknot album really kicked the door open for what 21st century metal sounded like and um really drove drove the bandwagon forward and and for sort of that five-year run 99 sort of 2004 before they went on a bit of a hiatus slipknot were the untouchable um the untouchable gods atop of the new wave of, of heavy metal and, 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 and metal that was, that was really sweeping the country. And I'm separating them from the Metallicas and Slayers of the world, but um, of their generation, it is it really is Slipknot and then everybody else. Yeah. And um, bec- it really kind of started because of this opening album, which I still think, um, I think is one of the strongest four track openings of any oh. album I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, like, you know, um, going from a uh, sick oilless white and bleed and surfacing, not counting the, the introductory song at the start, but those, those, those four tracks just to open, um, and then going to like liberate it's, it's as good as metal gets at yeah. times. Uh, it's just absolutely astonishing. Um, and features, um, I think two of the, 
the most instantly recognisable musician vocalist combinations in Joey Jordison on drums and Corey Taylor on vocals. Yeah, it's just, it's just it's 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 the most it's the most raw version of Slipknot um, that we've ever ever heard. But I think it is the absolute one that any metal fan, any self-respecting metal fan, must listen to in full um, because I think it lies a blueprint for the darker new metal stuff that was to come later, but also really metal in general. You listen to Eyeless and you listen to the breakdown at the end of Eyeless. That's a deathcore breakdown, like ahead Absolutely, of its time. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, 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 and hearing the way that they were constructing songs and some of these riffs and stuff really opened the door for what metal became later. So obviously we discussed all that in, in detail on our, on our pod last year. Um, so that's well worth checking out, especially if you want to keep, um, if you want to keep in sort of sequential order with the rest of us, that would be really, really good. Um, but yeah, um, absolute, obviously, Dynamite album and well worth its place in there at number eight. I'm not going to add any more to that, Sam, because I do feel like we'll end up falling down the rabbit hole of just talking about Zidnod's debut album again. Because you know what I'm <laughs> like, mate. When you get me on a topic, I'll just fucking, I'll just fly oh, on the topic for an hour. We're especially both, we're both the same in that way. Mate, especially on a topic that I care for as much as Zidnod's debut record. They're one of my favourite bands. So... I think you've summed that up brilliantly and I will leave it there. Um, I'll put the link in the description for that episode. Go back and listen to that if you missed it. Um, but Sam, we're going to hit number seven. Uh, Pantera, so- Pantera's unbelievably sixth, you wouldn't think, studio album. No. Uh, Vulgar Display of Power released on February 25th, 1992. Uh, we always like to paint some kind of picture of what the band looked like before they got onto the record that we are discussing as entering our list. So, you know, if if you didn't know anything about Pantera and you jumped on Spotify and typed in Pantera, you would have every reason to believe that Vulgar Display of Power is actually their sophomore record, wouldn't you? Uh, it is not. Yeah. It's, it, it is this, the band's sixth studio album. Um, and I suppose when you, when you read back and, and you look at what Pantera were, pre-1990 it is very much two separate worlds isn't it yeah definitely there's um there's a there's a, a bc and id of pantera yeah and um that the the birth of christ definitely occurred on cowboys of hell uh cowboys from hell um because they themselves will tell you that they looking back they never felt like pantera until yeah. cowboys from hell and, and phil Anselmo. and before that they were still flirting with what kind of band they wanted to be and having internal discussions about that. Um, they And you listen back to um, Pantera prior to Cowboys from Hell, and they were a bit hair metally, a bit Motley Crue, um, not as not as anywhere near as strong and powerful as the band later became, and I think peaking on Vulgar Display of Power. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely a, a before and after with this band um, that really kicks off with Phil Anselmo joining. He took... He took this band to to a different sound, and then on top of that, um, even recognizing that um, Dimebag changes now from Diamond Daryl to Dimebag Daryl, yeah, uh, represents a symbolic shift away from what the band used to represent and what the band later became to be known for. Interesting, you make that point, Sam, because we were talking about Metallica's Ride the Lightning, which obviously entered ninth. And there's a clip from a, a live show with Metallica, and I can't remember exactly which one it is now. But uh, James Hetfield is standing there, it's during the Ride of the Lightning era, 
And he comes out to the crowd. He's like, if you were hoping that we would come out in wearing spandex and have crazy hairstyles and ready <laughs> yeah, yeah, makeup, yeah. you can fuck off right now. That's not us. And fascinatingly enough, that was Pan- <laughs> that was Pantera that he would be referencing there. The tight spandex pants, pan- spandex pants, um, and the very hair metally power metal lead style that Pantera were pushing forward in the mid to late eighties fascinating to think about especially considering the two albums that followed 1990 yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely it was the uh, 85 um, monsters of rock show in, in england it, yeah, I think. yeah 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 because it was their first uk festival slot so i think and they got put between bon jovi and rat didn't they absolutely right. extraordinary um but yeah you, you, you consider that pantera in the 90s and we'll get to this later properly are held as uh, as the bastion of 90s metal because of their impact on so many genres that we'll, we'll, we'll get to later. But in the way that, obviously Metallica were were the massive band of the 1980s and obviously Hetfield went on there. But then obviously Metallica changed their sound in, in the yeah. 1990s with the Black Album onwards. Yeah. Whereas Pantera, I think, laid the blueprint for extreme metal, starting with Vulgar Display of Pair in 92. Um, and I don't think you don't necessarily get the same sort of popularity for the likes of... You think that Vulgar Display comes out in 92, Machine Heads Burn My Eyes is two years later, and then two yeah. years after that comes Sepultura's Roots. And and then two years, uh, obviously two years prior to that is where you get Korn's debut album. I don't, I don't think those three albums that followed that have obviously changed the pattern of metal that we listen to would be as... Not I say wouldn't be as well received because you imagine a good album would be well well received if in, in any circumstance circumstances, but maybe not. It probably wouldn't sound quite the same had Dimebag Daryl's um, Vulgar Display of Power came before it because I think it really sort of set the blueprint of this thrash metal groove metal type sound that became incredibly popular for the next sort of five or six years, and then when slowed down became this new metal sound that Korn found. And then, you know what I mean? So I think yeah. that Pantera, ironically, considering what you said, that Pantera are actually the very sort of band that James Hetfield would have disliked very much in the 80s, actually became the band that James Hetfield was in, in terms of Metallica influence in the 1990s. It's really, really interesting, the turnaround. And obviously, um, we're all very, very grateful for it. So Pantera are in the 80s, this kind of hair metal, cheesy metal band. And then we hit 1990, Sam, uh, and they yes. released Cowboys from Hell, which I believe was their major label debut. Yeah, um, that's right. There's a notion, Sam, that heavy metal was starting to struggle in 1990. But can we just debate that for a second? Because <laughs> okay. uh, in 1990, Megadeth's Rust in Peace, yes. uh, Judas Priest's Painkiller, uh, Slayer's yes. Seasons in the Abyss and um, Iron yes. Maiden's No Prayer for the Dying came out in that year. Now, you'll have to tell me whether No Prayer for the Dying is a good record or not. It's okay. It's right. um, it's not the best, but um, the, the two years later, um, one year or two years later, they came up with Fear of the Dark, which is very, very good. Right. So, so uh, it's all right, but it got rescued. Saying that metal was quote-unquote struggling in 1990, no. I'm not sure whether that's fair personally um what about yourself uh, i i completely disagree with that notion i i think that metal metal hadn't even done hadn't even gone through the change yet i think whoever's saying that um has mixed up 1990 with 1991 um when 
grunge happened. Right. Yes. Yeah, um, so put opinion that before we go. To, uh, we've got yeah, a whole yeah, section. Yeah. So, so, so that, that's, that's absolutely fine. But I, I what I'm trying, what I'm trying to say is, it, is at night it wasn't grunge didn't happen because metal was dying, and then Kurt Cobain decided I'm going to write something to combat metal. That's not how it worked. Um, metal was was still incredibly incredibly popular. And as you point out, there were at least three albums that were really, really, really important that came out during that year that helped spur the metal world on. It didn't have, it didn't have the overwhelming popularity it had in the mid-80s during the um, Van Halen and Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue era. And as Metallica were about to, but nobody knew that they weren't at this point, were about to transition away from Thrash. Um, the changes were coming, but by no means was metal dying. Metal has never been dying. People just, it's just slipped away from the main cultural zeitgeist for a little bit and then come back later. And that's exactly what happened here. So we agree that the concept that metal was struggling in 1990 uh, is slightly far-fetched. But how about this? I think it would be much more apt to say that metal needed new superstars or or new a, a new band to kind of hang their hopes on in 1990 because all those bands I've just mentioned were already very well established come 1990 so I, yeah. I think I think in 1990 it started to become quite important that there was a new and as you refer to Pantera as this like a new bastion for heavy metal that would do something that really no one had done with it before and I think that is what pan is is what nineteen ninety needed. Not necessarily that metal was struggling, but that they needed a new band to hang their hopes on. And mate, if if me and you were twenty years old in nineteen ninety and we listened to Cowboys from Hell, I mean, you, you you would be absolutely bombarded, wouldn't you, with this brand new fresh taste of heavy, of what heavy metal could be. Not for the entirety of the record, because you know, looking back at Cowboys from House Sam, there is still yeah. the, the flickering of classic hair metal that runs throughout yeah, that it's, record. It's, it's a transitional album, isn't it? It's like yeah. Pantera in their adolescence, almost. But the you title know, track, mate, it. the title track, mate, and Domination, Yeah, that, that's where you're like, wow, this is, this is what metal needs, something completely new that hasn't been seen before. And also, it's fucking really, really heavy. Like, if, if, if Pantera weren't going to go for the speed of Thrash, they need to slow things down and just be, and, and find another way of being the heaviest band in the world. And we'll go much further into detail on that, but I do think they absolutely found that. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think you're right in terms of there was a generational shift that was occurring in the late 80s and early 90s and bands thankfully as metal tends to do uh, bands sprout up and, and and take the mantle away and obviously metallica's 80s reputation was pretty much still ironclad um but with the justice for all stuff um there was a a viewpoint among some of the harder metal fans that had got a little bit softer even justice for all which is astonishing to think about um and were obviously privately moving towards a, a completely different change. So it was, it was absolutely important. I absolutely agree with you. It was really, really important that Pantera um, came up and took the mantle towards heavier, darker metal, of which there will always be a yearning for, always be a yearning for, and really push the, 
push the genre forward to more extreme depths. Uh, and I agree with you, Cowboys from Hell did show um, flickerings of adolescence in terms of it still did have um, elements of hair metal. Even on the song Cowboys from Hell, his vocals yeah. are still a little bit like sort of high-pitched Poison-esque, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. You know, he, hasn't, he hasn't quite nailed the, um, the deep, bluesy growl that he perfected on Vulcan no, Display no. of Power onwards, no. which I think really sets them apart. And of course, um, uh, and of course, the haircut as well. Yeah. Um, the buzz, the buzz cut heard around the world happened in 1992, and Phil I got rid of the, the long hair, and the, I think it was symbolised their sort of changes. But I, 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 I agree with you. You hear, you hear domination and primal concrete sledge. I think is the other one on on Cable yeah, yeah. Boys from Hell album, um, where apparently they only had like a couple of minutes before the end of the studio, which is why it's so quick and fast um, when they recorded it. But that that really, you hear those two. You hear the breakdown at the end of Domination. You hear the breakdown at the start of Promo Concrete Sledge. And you're like, this is this is a different type of metal. This is abrasive and hard and heavy. And this guitar work is sensational. This vocalist is, is really deep and guttural. It really started the the blueprint that has become modern metal. That, that obviously they then perfect on full display of power. So I completely agree with almost everything you said. You referenced it earlier, Sam, and probably no time better than now to discuss. Come 1991, Sam, metal would be in a state of flux. Uh, There was something happening in Seattle, Sam, that would absolutely dominate conversation for a few years and then absolutely dissipate from conversation. Shortly yeah. after as well. Um, we will do an episode somewhere further down the line, fully exploring the explosion and implosion of grunge. Because uh, yeah. I do think that's a very fascinating time frame of alternative music there. Yeah, I agree. Went away as quickly as it arrived. Oh, crazy. And, and there's, there's loads of interesting stuff to talk about there. So we, we will do an episode further down the line about that. But, mate... Uh, between what 1990 and 1995, should we say? I probably could say 94, but I'll be generous to say 95. Uh, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alison Chains. Actually, can we just mention, isn't it absurd the that they're all the, oh, the pixies as well? That they're all from Seattle. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Alison Chains, all from Seattle, all break, all mm, here or thereabouts, breakthrough at the same time. That's absurd. Yeah. It is completely absurd. And also, they're all grunge, but they're also completely different sounding grunge bands. Yeah, crazy. Like Pearl Jam sound nothing like Alice in Chains. Alice in Chains sound nothing like Nirvana, really. Uh, it did, and, and, and it's just, it's, it's, I agree with you, absolutely crazy that this took place over like a couple of couple of year periods and then none of them knew each other. <laughs> I mean, Seattle is massive. Like, like, yeah, yeah, it's a huge city, but like you'd think, like, I mean, Metallica knew Slayer. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? They were touring, relatively speaking. And I think it's just crazy. I, I completely agree. And I think it would be a great podcast to do about the grunge era and about uh, how it really how it really changed metal for a few years and literally encouraged um, really ardent metal guitarists and metal bands who were completely legendary and well set to get like panicked phone calls from record label companies being like, are you going to do an album where you sound like this? Because if yeah. you don't, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to have an album to sell. And like, like bands like Megadeth are t- like 
like talking about cutting the hair and stuff. And yeah. it's, it's crazy. Like how, how things just shifted on its head for like literally three or four years. I think, I think you're right saying 94. Cause I think it, <laughs> I think it legitimately died with Cobain. April 94, he, he obviously commits suicide. And it kind of just yeah. dissipates after that. Elaine Staley dies, uh, leading to uh, leading Alice in Chains. Pearl Jam changed their sound. They go from more pop rock stuff. Um, Soundgarden dissipate. You know what I mean? It all just happens over the course of like a year, year long period. It's mental. Just to give a bit of background context on just how massive grunge had become in this four year period, I'm just going to read you uh, a couple of Kerrang's albums of the year listings uh, for the early 90s. Um, so, uh, 1991, Metallica's uh, Black Album gets number one. Sam Garden's uh, Bad Mouth to Finger, uh, number two. Uh, in 1992, Alice in Chains' Dirt, number one. The Black Crow's nice. Southern Harmony and Musical Companion uh, is number two. Uh, 93, Pearl Jam uh, is number one with Versus uh, Entombed. A second with Wolverine Blues, and then ninety, and then in ninety four, uh, Therapy's Trouble Gun is the album of the year, and Soundgarden Super Unknown is ninety four. So I won't go uh, fully reading out Metallica's album of the year list. What um, Metallica's Kerrang's album of the year list. What I can say is, for five years, there is at least one grunge album in Kerrang's top five albums of the year. And on three occasions, uh, a grunge band is the album of the year. Uh, quickly pointing out, uh, Pantera's Volgus by a Pair finished seventh um, in the album not in the album of the year, nineteen ninety-two. Uh, third was Kaius Blues for the Red Sun. Pearl Jam's Ten was fourth. Ministry Psalms, uh, Ministry in Psalms sixty-nines. The way to succeed and the way to suck eggs was five, and then helmets, helmets. Meantime was six. So uh, interesting for Panto to finish seventh there, and I think that uh, that is possibly uh, highlighting the concept of sometimes albums need to live for a while for you to really understand the gravity. A little bit, and 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 sometimes the editor at Kerrang's taking too much acid and listening to Ministry on his own. <laughs> yeah, um, and helmets. What the fuck? <laughs> But I got, I got, I got no problem with Pearl Jam's Ten. That is a classic record. Absolutely no problem. Helmet, Helmet. Uh, I haven't listened to Meantime Time by Helmet. I can't. So it would be, it would be uh, unfair for me to give a judgment there because I haven't listened to the record. Um, but what, the reason I want to bring that up at this period, where Metallica, as you rightly mentioned, moved away from thrash, and now there's this thing called grunge, which is absolutely the biggest thing in alternative music. Uh, Nirvana is selling like 100,000 copies of Nevermind a week. Um, Addison Chains and Soundgarden have completely burst through the doors. Pearl Jam and Massive Eddie Vedder is like this cultural icon, and grunge is fucking huge. Dude, if Pantera don't exist at this time, in, in the early 90s, as this young brash, fucking incredibly heavy, nasty, gnarly band that your classic heavy metal fan could really believe in. I dread to think what could have happened with metal had Pantera not have been this young, new bastion for people to really hang the hopes on. Yeah, I think for a couple of years it would have been really dark. Um, I, I, think, I think, though, I think, though, what you end up getting with metal is that if you, if you extend the period of having no breakthrough extreme metal acts. It just means that when an extreme metal act breaks through later, it, it's heavier and darker and more angry. That's what I think. I think it's like like shaking a bottle. Um, now, luckily, like Pantera came out in 1992. 
and gave us gave metal fans who weren't into grunge, of which I'm presuming if you're a thrash metal fan through the 80s, you're not necessarily going to drop all that and just start listening to um, to Nirvana. I, no. I, I, I think there were probably a few, like me and you, I think if we were like around in that early period of the 90s, I think we'd have still been like, oh, there's, some of these albums are really, really good. Um, but there were definitely some metal fans that wouldn't have even touched Nirvana with a 10-foot barge pole on principle, just because they're, they're, they're sort of built that way. And it just, I think it just would have meant that there were like two or three years where they're just listening to Megadeth and Metallica, waiting for the next ne- next band until Machine Head and, and, and Sepultura broke through like two or three years later. I think that would have still taken place, but maybe not as impactfully. Um, but I definitely think the period from sort of like 91 to 95 would have been really problematic um, because because the because in the main metal zeitgeist, there was pretty much none of that going on. I think what it might have done is driven metal fans to more extreme depth. So like in the early 90s, if you wanted to, um, you could still find like albums like by bands such as Death, Carcass, yeah. And at the gates in that early '90s, that were beginning to move towards that that um, a real, a real extreme metal, and we started getting like early black metal albums in the '90s and stuff. Um, so I think metal fans would have had to go further afield to find darker metal, which was so there might have been a parallel universe, Chris, where without Pantera, another band might have had the mantle of like extreme metal kings for a couple of years. And he might have promoted, you know what I mean? He might have promoted another band and another type of movement. Um, so that there's an interesting discussion. But I do think if you're a mainstream American or British heavy metal fan and you grew up listening to thrash metal and then the grunge thing happens and you're not interested in it, there's definitely like three or four years where you're, you are struggling with it, Pantera, definitely. You know... Pantera played that show in Moscow, Sam, uh, in front yeah. of like a million people where the Berlin Wall had, had just come down. Yeah, um, field, I think. The, the I've, I've read about this. They were actually in like doing like in the studio recording uh, at that time. They fly over and they do that show, and I believe they might have. I think they might have opened uh, the show. You what, mate? I mean, uh, you you showed me one of the first times I ever encountered Pantera was you showing me that that the video for when the Duke Boys from Hell, yeah, at that at that show. And I mean, it is. I mean, they are on fire, Pantera are on that <laughs> stage. I mean, that yeah. is one of the that is one of the great metal performances in a bubble that you could ever see. Just these five minutes. I mean, they play for about twenty five minutes, I think. But just watching Cowboys from Hell fucking hell, uh, and domination. Fuck, they, I mean, yeah. um, really, really brilliant. This on fire, this young band that look like they got fucking literal a burn in their bellies to just be the greatest, heaviest band they can possibly be. And the way the crowd gets it up, man, that crowd absolutely explodes. And Fernand Samo said that, that they went down so well at that show that they came back to the studio with, a whole, whole new level of confidence, which references the lyrics, a new level of, and a new level of confidence and power lyrics on the song, a new level. Um, Terry Date, the producer of Vulgar Display of Power, said that uh, Pantera wanted to produce the heaviest record of all time. And just as we now get into talking about the album, Sam, I think for its time that it succeeded. Now, your knowledge of 
late 80s, early 90s metal is better than mine. So you will be able to tell me if there was another metal record that was actually heavier than this, but it wasn't as transcendent as this. But from what I've heard of this period of metal, this would have been the heaviest thing I would have ever heard if I was 18 in 1992. No, I actually, I actually agree with you. Um, because there are, there are faster albums, there are darker albums, but I don't think there's heavier albums or thicker albums or um, just more violent albums than, than this. Um, heaviness isn't, you know, heaviness isn't just, you know, how loud the guitars are and, or how, how nasty your lyrics are or how much organ you've put in the background of something while you talk about killing a maiden in Scandinavia or something. It, it's, it's almost like an attitude and a mindset and a violence and aggression in the musicianship. And I think Pantera opened the door for lots of heaviness later for other bands. But no, I think, I think in 1992, they were absolutely on point with releasing one of the, the heaviest, one of the heaviest and most aggressive albums to that point that we'd ever heard. I mean, you tell me, you, you, you say, you say you think it's the heaviest. Do you think it's heavier than Seasons in the Abyss by Slayer that came out two years prior. I do, it's heavier. Yeah. I do, Okay. Yeah. So that, that, that's the only one that I think is close in right. terms of just the, in, in terms of like the pure riff work. Unless you talk about, do you think it's heavier than Sepultura's Chaos AD? That's the one that I was going to say could possibly be what was that 90 89 that sort of time uh, yeah it was i think her id was i it was a nine was 90 yeah um oh that's the one that i think could you know you could really have a have a debate about that one uh, I, I think i would still go with i, I think i'd still go with vulgar display of power um only possibly only slightly that Actually, you know, I'm going to check when when Chaos AD came out because uh, I can't. It's got to be late 80s, but... early 90s, isn't it? It's got it's let... before 92. Definitely, I'm convinced. Let, let me just uh, remind myself because you you've made me you've made me oh, several children so many albums. Uh, you've made me. Uh, oh no, 93. Myself. 93. Right. Okay. 93. Okay. So we've got to discount that. We've, we've got, got to discount, discount that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So yeah. It would have been because I think it's definitely heavy, heavier than Seasons in the Abyss. Yeah, I think I think that's fair then. Um, I, I, because I think it kicked the door open for um, for heavier albums that came later. And like I said, I think that if you really wanted to look around, I think you could find like Carcass and and other yeah, know, some, to go, some obscure like, metal really band. Nasty, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, you could you could go uh, you could say well you know it's not um, it's not as heavy as um, as Morbid Angel and and stuff like that. But I think I think I think it's fair to say that it's the heaviest mainstream metal yeah, album if we can yeah. call it a mainstream metal album um really until 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 corn's debut or at least until if you can keep machine heads burn my eyes as a, as a mainstream metal album although at the time it's considered really extreme um but yeah i i, I really think it's a fair cop i think i think i think i think pantera's heaviness and aggression and violence and groove on this album really set them apart um on top of it being the quote-unquote heaviest so at least in that sort of period um there's still never been a band that sounds like this band no no absolutely the, the, not. The, um, we talk about how, how they established how heavy and angry they are can we now talk about how they established their pantera yeah like if that if that's if that's a if that's an adjective to use 
there's a certain sound that they've conjured from the back alleys of Texas where they come from. And it's a combination of dark blues and thrash metal and what would later become sort of modern breakdowns and combined it with like Vinnie Paul's clicky bass drums, which became copied, <laughs> essentially yeah. stolen by yeah. every metal, every thrash, thrash metal band for the next decade. And also the Rev by Avenged Sevenfold, who was a massive Vinnie Paul fan, even famously played with Vinnie Paul's snare drum. Um, copied the same bass sounds on like City of Evil and that. So that, that became a staple of modern metal later. And then obviously Phil Anselmo's voice, who, who somehow manages to, to split between screaming extreme metal vocalist to deep guttural um, hardcore vocalist. Like Phil Anselmo, if you dropped Phil Anselmo in 2020, he'd be knocked loose. Yeah. Um, and what a, what a time that would be for everybody involved, <laughs> yeah, by the way. Yeah. Um, but also, it, it managed. It manages to be like, like if you listen to like Cemetery Gates and, and and this love on 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 vulgar display of power, but really tender and vulnerable, yeah, yeah. sort of crooning, bluesy singer. And it's it's astonishing. The level of talent in this band is crazy. But on this album specifically, more so the Cowboys well, because like we said, they were growing up a little bit. They found their Pantera sound. Now, you can have the arguments till the chaos come about what's heaviest is they coined a blueprint that has been repeated and copied, or at least attempted to be copied, but never entirely replicated ever. Mm. There's mm. never been a band that sounds like Pantera. Even bands that include members of Pantera have yeah, tried to sound yeah. like Pantera, like Down and all Vinnie Paul's like side projects. They just can't do it. It, the Dimebag guitar sound and the Vinnie Paul drums and the Phil Anselmo vocals combined together is just a noise that I have still never heard anybody come close to. Pantera so no. instantly recognisable. Absolutely. It, it, it's extraordinary. Really is extraordinary. You know, me and you have have said this to each other a million times. In fact, sometimes I feel like we say it and then we just look forward to giving it a few weeks to be able to say it to each other again. <laughs> hoping that we might have forgot we've said it previously uh, mate you know imagine you buy that Master of Puppets vinyl and you put it on and the opening riff to battery starts and you are about to experience this massive 60 minute exploration of where metal is going to go or what metal can be that you've never heard it be done before and I relate that to the opening of Mouth for War on this album because yesterday I was talking to, you know, my brother was around yesterday. I was talking to my brother. I was like, oh, you know, number seven is Pantera's Vogue Display of Power. And he was like, oh, I've never really listened to Pantera. And I was, you know, that set me off. I was like, well, you know, they're amazing. They do, well, you know, they, they need to sit down. Yeah, well, they, you know, they do this and they did this. And if it wasn't for them, this wouldn't have happened and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, actually, why don't I just play you the first 30 seconds of the opening song from the album? that we're going to talk about and you will instantly understand why we are going to be to why it's number seven why we're going to be talking about it and mate that fucking dun 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 and then mate when 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 Dimebag fully kicks into the riff oh my god just that bend like on the on the chord you can hear and then mate the the double tap from Vinny Phil comes in revenge Oh, mate, it is the fucking greatest. Literally, mate, 
if if I'm like 20 in 1992, I'm listening to this album for the first time. I think this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Like, I'll, I'll be, it's I'll completely be, I'll new, honest, yeah? fresh, fucking brutal, and absolutely fucking pounding genius. Yeah, man, I heard this in 2007 for the first time, and I thought this was, like, the best thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> like, I, honestly, like, I, I'd never heard anything like it. I remember getting Pantera's Best Off when I was, like, 14. I was just fucking kicking off. It was so good. <laughs> the, the sound, I think, you listen to, fuck, um, listen to, to Mouth of War, and the way that it sounds, it literally sounds like, I know this is going to sound like a real cheesy Kerrang line, but it... You could describe it in the same way you talk about that Bob Dylan um, thing, but it's it's them kicking down the door almost, yeah. Um, uh, for for like for like for like like cultural metal dominance, so to speak. And then when it kicks in with Dimebag with the riff, it's almost like they've walked into your living room or yeah. in through your speaker and they've yeah. invaded your life, and they're they're there now and they'll never go away. And it's the perf it's the perfect opener. It's the perfect opener. It's it's one of the all time great opening. Um, opening songs on any album in terms of oh what do Pantera sound like and you can literally you don't have to look very hard let's just play the first 35 seconds of their first song on on, on Focus by Power and that will do yeah. for, for absolutely that um, it's so well mixed and just jumps out of the speaker but I absolutely agree um, the second riff the, the, the sliding riff that you mentioned <laughs> um, I've still never heard a riff like that no, me neither. Um, I've never heard a guitar riff played that way, where he, where he's instead of just changing the chord, he essentially just slides his finger on the neck. That's that, almost like the start of a car engine sound you can hear. Um, that he's he's sort of flitting between the chords there, um, just within seconds. Highlights that Dimebag Daryl is one of the most inventive and creative guitarists that we've ever had, and then at the end of Mouth War, it's got that thrash section, hasn't yeah. it? Uh, that just blows the doors off again and, 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 and sort of you, you start by thinking, all right, this, this, this is like a brand of metal I've never heard before. And at the end you're thinking, Oh my God, this is like a thrash song. And it just combines all of these, all of these ideas and all of these transitions together. It's just brilliant. And then the actual chorus is catchy as well. Like it's a great yeah, chorus. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's ticking so many boxes, but, this is a great thing about Pantera. Never at any second in this entire album does it sacrifice melody for aggression. It just combines them together. Absolutely. It, it's like it's like they, they never think, oh, we need a chorus here. They think, oh, we'll just layer the chorus with all of this absolutely massive sounding riffs and stuff. It, it's that's what made them so great, I think, is that they're so literally and the, the True more for Pantera than pretty much any other metal band because when Metallica went big on choruses, even they dropped the tempo and dropped the, the heaviness. But the, if you say that the, the riff work is 10 out of 10, the, the heaviness aggression is 10 out of 10, so is the melody and size of the choruses. And they're all just running. Like on the Marshall stacks, all been turned up to 10. It's extraordinary. So yeah, I completely agree that, that Mouth for War is just the perfect opener. And the, the best way to explain what they're like as a band. It's just a superb song. Well, my brother, who's never listened to Pantera before in his life, immediately looked at me as soon as that riff kicked in, and he was like, okay, yeah, I compl- yeah, this sounds fucking wicked. <laughs> like, I played in the 30 seconds, I was like, listen to us talk about it, and then listen to the album, and you will have a new metal band that you adore, because then you will find fucking Far Beyond Driven. 
you know, uh, which, yeah. you know, we can debate to the cows gone whether Far Beyond Driven is a better record or not. You know, there probably is a place for that discussion, which we won't do now. Um, but one of the things I absolutely adore about Pantera, and there's many things, but one of them, especially on this album, uh, regardless of, just to piggyback off what you were saying, actually, regardless of the tempo, it's still one of the heaviest pieces of music you've ever heard. Even now, for me, it's one of the heaviest albums I've ever heard. If you compare the tempo, uh, to from mouth for war to a new level, there are completely different pace settings, but they're still so heavy. That's opening sludgy, slow riff to a new level. I mean, man, I listened to it on my uh, uh, Beats headphones. Fucking hell, mate! It is like it, it, the fucking reverberates around your fucking brain, mate. Mm. So, fucking brutal. Um, and I think that. That's one of the <laughs> it's gonna make noise at each other now. I, I think <laughs> that's one of the things they absolute genius at on this record, regardless of pace setting. Still, one of the heaviest things you've ever heard, mate. It's one of my favorite production jobs of all time. Uh, which what, what Terry Date does here, unbelievable. Completely agree. I completely agree. He manages to maximize the band entirely. Where <laughs> this is one guitarist. <laughs> oh, mate. Uh, remember, you, remember uh, when you were telling me this? You were like, I had never listened to Pantera before. And you were playing him. You were like, this is one guy, this. I was like, no, there's no way. You were like, yeah, I swear. <laughs> Look, it's a video of them. The yeah. one person. Um, yeah, it's, it's just extraordinary. And now I know that they, that on the solos, on the studio records, they layer it. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, uh, it was for him to solo over. Um, but... He, the, the 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 way that the way that way that Dimebag's able to structure some of these riffs, like he, he wrote every single riff, every single transition, on this on this on on this album with him and him and Vinny just sort of messing about between them, it just gives them this sort of tribal uh, purity to, to to their music. It's just absolutely extraordinary. I agree with you. Um, new level, yeah, completely changes the pace, and yet still jumps again, jumps out the speaker, massively heavy, massively groovy. Um, and that's the thing. It's 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 not just like you can just headbang along to it by keeping in time and stuff. There's a real there's a real groove and danceability, and um, like not relatability as such, but it's so instantly capturing. Like it, it's hard. It's very hard to explain, but you can't help moving when you hear some of these riffs. They oh, just mate, do no. something to you. There's like a percussive. A tribal quality to it. It's like when you when you hear great dance music, even people that don't like dance music can can't help themselves, sort of tapping their feet and nodding along. And that's here because it's they've combined the heaviness and the aggression of metal, but with this really really base human instinct to just be gravitated to the to, to the beat and the, the heaviness of the riffs. And uh, it's just from track after track after track. Of, of just incredible, incredible grooves. And you go from a new level, Chris, into, into <laughs> track three. Oh, boy. Which is yeah. uh, a top five to seven greatest metal song of all time. Yeah. In any, in any list. In any list. And it, it, obviously the most famous Pantera song and, and arguably the best. But the riff to walk and the beat. Timeless. And the chorus. It is just instantly capturing. I remember, I remember hearing it for the first time. Uh, on like again, Kerrang played it late at night, and I was just listening to it on on, on the radio, and it was just, what is this? Yeah. Like it is just heavy and dark and nasty, and just immediately catchy and bluesy, 
and then Phil Anselmo's vocals come across over the top. Oh my god! Um, when he yeah. when he starts holding those notes, like call yourself a friend, and he holds it and he almost screams it, uh, and he talks about playing the violins and all, uh, just his vocals over the top of that riff. It's just instantly capturing, and then obviously on top of that, the chorus is massive. Um, the the solo is incredible. It goes back into that world famous, instantly iconic riff. Just get captured by that point. I, I I can't. The thing is, I knew about half these songs the first time I listened to this album th- through, so it wasn't like a new experience. But I I can't even imagine how I would have felt if I'd never heard Pantera before and I just pressed play on this album, and and it just gets better and better and better and better and better as it goes through. Honestly, it's just extraordinary. Well, look at how many, you know, those um, channels on YouTube where it's like two rap fans listen to insert metal band. Yeah. yeah. Look, how, look how many of them have done a video for Walk. Yeah. Because it's one of the most transcendent metal songs in history. Now, I, I yeah, objectively, I would put it as one of the greatest metal anthems of all time. But I don't think it's in the best three songs on this album. Like, and objectively... It is one of the absolute like top ten greatest metal songs ever. But for my personal taste, I'd probably say it's like the fourth or fifth best track on this record. Do you think that's because of oversaturation for you? Because it's been um, played so often in like nightclubs and all that sort of stuff. I'd say no for the simple reason of I, I've been I, I've been re-listening to I mean to my absolute pleasure I've been re-listening to Vulgar Display of Power a lot over the last over the last three uh, three to five days. Um, mm. And I've really picked every song apart to see what I specifically love about each individual one. And Walk, I'd probably put fourth. My top three might probably be Mouth for War, Fucking Hostile, and uh, By Demons Be Driven. So that's but, interesting. But it was uh, this brilliantly catchy, anthemic for Pantera <laughs> song that people could become really infatuated with and then be curious to dive into the band. Like, if you hear that song on um, Headbangers Ball on MTV uh, in, the yeah. early, in the early 90s and you weren't aware of Pantera were, I've got no doubt that you'd be like, who, were, who the fuck were that band and where can I get one of their new cassettes? I'll go to my local record store and see if they've got one of their cassettes or uh, CDs or vinyls in at that time. And... Um, and walk, walk, as I mentioned when you were talking about, it, will be timeless, mate. That will still be played in nightclubs in forty years. Um, sin- just synonymous with with heavy metal. Um, my favourite Phil performance is on fucking Hostile. And I, really, I think, that's interesting. I, I think Phil Anselmo is fen- is a phenomenal out of this world vocalist. For you know, for the period between nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety eight. I'm sorry, no one gets near him. I, I just think he's fucking incredible. And there's loads of stuff we could pick out on Far Beyond Driven that, that he's amazing on. But specifically this album, he, he's just at another level, no pun intended. Uh, mate, I'm fucking hostile. Uh, his vocal range, which I, sometimes I don't, you know, when people talk about Finansama, they always talk about his, his low-end brutal um, screams and growls that, really make a song but sometimes I, I think don't think he gets credit enough for the ability on his range you know on yeah, on, on, fucking host, on fucking hostile mate he's got this really quick vibe like venomous spit which you know yeah. mate you listen to Corey Taylor in 99 to 2001 hello <laughs> you, you, you yeah. know I mean would you agree 
Yeah, no, I think that's a fairly really fair comparison. I think if you, you could make definitely make an argument that vocally for Lance Lamar began something that Corey Taylor certainly finished or continued. Um, yeah, I agree that his variety is, is what sets him apart here. And he's simultaneously um, brutal and bluesy and high-pitched and everything works. <laughs> like, yeah. there's, 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 no, there's, no, there's no moment here where he, he's chosen the wrong style. Everything beautifully fits in what's going on here. He's a legitimately extraordinary vocalist and it's a real... Real shame what happened to him in terms of his health and obviously his drug use really started to affect him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in his spine and all that sort of stuff, and that really took a toll on, on eventually how his voice ended up sounding and things like that. Um, but I agree. Um, it, it give me give me ninety two to yeah ninety seven maybe touring off trend kill perhaps um, ninety seven ninety eight Phil Anselmo up there with with I'd put him up there with any other great metal vocalist. And there's probably only maybe Corey Taylor that he doesn't doesn't beat out in terms of um, variety and, and range um, because on top of fucking hostile, which I agree, there's like a, there's like a high pitched, um, not rap, but certainly an element of sort of quick pace, punk rock style vocals. And then you can, then you combine that with like his performance on this love or even hollow. Oh yeah. Where it sounds like, it sounds like they're, they're trying to rewrite cemetery gates with the, with the vocal performance that he's giving there. And then you listen to again, like, by Demons Be Driven, where it's it, 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 it it's just a whole combination of things in terms of like his, yeah. his bluesy and his deep and his brutality and all this sort of stuff sort of comes together once again. It's it's um it's a masterclass of vocal performances, only bettered by the man with the red beard playing the guitar next to him. Um, yeah. Um, in terms of in terms of guitarists, Chris. Oh my God, metal. Where does Dimebag sit for you? Well, he's my favourite ever. And okay. that's fair. And, and I, I, I think on this record, he becomes a, a, a true guitar hero. He is yeah. up there with Eddie Van Halen, Tony Iommi category. Yeah, I completely agree. Like I said, there's, there's no wrong answer if you're putting Dimebag Dabble at the top or anything like that. It's just superb. Um, I I I kind of I kind of I kind of hasten to agree. I think you're looking at in no particular order. Yeah, it's it's Iommi, it's Van Halen, it's Hetfield uh, in terms of like riff writing and stuff. Um, but in terms of lead guitarists, it, it I, I can't off the top of my off the, off the top of my head. I'm you know you, you're thinking maybe all right, okay, Kirk Hammett, maybe Dave Mustaine, um, maybe later on you talk about sort of like Sinister Gates, um, you know, um, some of the lads in Trivium or Machine Head, those sort of bands. But for his period of time and what he manages to write, he was so far ahead of pretty oh much everybody God. else apart, yeah. from, apart from Van Halen. And he, like you said, became a guitar hero on this record and still is a guitar yeah. hero on this record. Um, even now in 2020, every so often I will see a, just a random video that's shared onto my timeline on Twitter or Facebook of a kid, like long hair, 15, 16, 17, um, with a flying with a flying V. Yep. Or um one of Dimebag's old guitars playing Cowboys from Hell for the first time. And you know what I mean? Or or learning walk or playing the solo. And it's Pat Dimebag's work has become for for the metal fan, just as much a metal rites of passage 
as it would do, like as Guns N' Roses did for Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction did for the rock and roll fan, and ACDC did for the for the rock fan, and, and Metallica did for a thrash metal fan, um, because because primarily of of Dimebag Daryl's guitar work, the riffs that he writes combined with some of the solo work that he does, amazing, is absolutely absolutely astonishing, and and like and like and like Phil Anselmo, he managed to slide between fast paced thrash stuff like on Made for War to pure blue solos like on Walk to like I don't know to describe it like imagine that he's playing guitar in a in a sort of swinging nightclub in like the 60s and 70s in this love where he's sort of like accompanying this this ballad and he's never he's never out of place never ever ever out of place and I I, I agree with you this is where Dimebag Daryl became the Dimebag Daryl that we know and, and adore to this to this day really because this guitar performance is He's right up there with any musical performance of any album in metal ever, 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 ever. And even looking at the next six albums that we're going to be talking about, there are there are there's a very short list in terms of musical performances that are better than this particular one. Um, in terms of just an individual, um, really reaching the peak of his powers here, it's just. Really, are no words um, to, that can adequately describe how different Dimebag Daryl sounds to anybody else, and how impactful he became later, and just how wonderful he sounds on this album. It is really, really, really superb. Well, him, him, and Vinny is my favourite rhythm section ever. Um, Can't argue with I, that in the slightest, mate. And I know, like <laughs> Dimebag was actually the lead, but you know what I mean. Um, that, that those two are just fucking. Mind blowing. I mean, we we haven't got time to pick out every, every great moment of fucking Vinny and dying back throughout their careers because we do a whole podcast on that. A quick mention, mate, for Rex Brown, who is often really criminally overlooked in his band. He yeah. serve he services Pantera brilliantly, and the best example of it. Uh, Dimebag obviously drops an absolutely ridiculous solo on No Good, but you can hear if you listen to everything, you can hear Rex propping him up with this really like, sneering, dirty bass line underneath. Really helps flesh the solo out. It's really genius stuff, uh, and and I think Rex is like the perfect understated basis for this band. Doesn't get, a, but obviously he's in a band with one of the great guitarists of all time, one of the great drummers of all time, one of the great vocalists of all time. So, you know, sometimes it is the classic case of, you know, the, the bass struggles to take the girl home kind of thing. But, man, Rex Brown, fucking brilliant service for Pantera. Oh, 100%. I agree with you. They're a completely underrated figure and just meshes beautifully with um, Vinnie Paul's bass drum. Yeah. And just able, able to really, really match whatever incredible incredible drum beat Vinny was putting down and really able to compliment what Dimebag was doing there really really beautifully and if he hadn't done that he wouldn't be able to give the freedom for Dimebag to be able to to go off the reservation and play the way that he does and really dominate the way that he's become known for and I completely agree with you it, it the fact that these, these essentially it's a three piece three piece plus a vocalist it's a, <laughs> It's astonishing. They're all they're all incredible musicians, and I think they all simultaneously reached their peak on this album. I think if you were looking for, could you give me the the one specific time frame that really highlights just how brilliant the band's writing has become by this point? I think the first minute of Rise, if you really listen out for it, mm. you can hear that the drums from Vinny, the riffs from Dimebag. And Rex 
a perfectly synced to punch right in between Phil's vocals. If you, if you listen out, you can hear them hit straight on certain syllables from Anselmo. Yeah, yeah. And it is fucking incredible how they managed to pull it off so tightly. And obviously, again, Terry Date, unbelievable production job. But it is an absolute tragedy that Pantera can never be seen again and wouldn't have been and haven't been seen for such a long time before, obviously, the tragic losses of the members of the band. Um, that is such an unbelievable piece of musicianship runs through that, that track. Um, and I think, you know, it, again, I've made this point a few times, but me and you quite off because we, because we were born when we were born, uh, you know, it's easy to look back and be like, oh, imagine if we were born then, but mate, um, just imagine being 21 years old and hearing, <laughs> and hearing this album. It would it would be legitimately like a complete life change for you. And then, and then you know, when we get towards like the, the back end of the record, mate, boy, Demons Be Driven. Unbelievable song. Fucking hell. That fucking gritty southern riff from Dimebag and fucking absolute sledgehammer drums from Vinny that like um, it's the, uh, that snare sound that Vinny's got on this album <laughs> ridiculous uh, and then you've got those low end vocals from fucking Phil um, and then there's there's a fill into the pinching solo by Dimebag fucking hell song is ridiculous oh I love it so much I, I completely I completely agree it there's so so many impressive moments outside of the main hits on this. Yeah, like, but I completely agree. I I, I love Built by Demons of Driven and Hollow and Rise and a new level. They're all just the second level of this album is just extraordinary. Like they still like if you take out the hits, if you took out Mouthful War Walk and This Love, I think this would still be like a top. 40 metal album yeah like it's still it's still really really great absolutely extraordinary Uh, just hearing i agree with you just the uh, vinnie paul is the master of 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 matching his um his drums to the vocals uh hitting hitting the snare and the cymbal at at times to punch you out certain uh, certain accents and syllables is something that he has become he became masterful at um through this period of time and and really, he he is a drummer. Probably peaked on the next album. Really, with some of the, yeah. the kick drum stuff he's doing. I was oh, going to say that. Yeah, fuck me. He's, he's stuff on far beyond driven. Jesus, unbelievable, unbelievable. He just he must transcend. He's like a just a machine at that point. But I, I I agree with you. Some of some of the some of the riff work just randomly here, just dotted throughout, is just unbelievable. There isn't a single solitary second. Uh, to borrow your phrase, where I am even remotely bored on this album. Just every every second, every every moment of this of this album is just a joyous assault on the senses, and just just the 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 the, the sonic version of, of 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 constantly being in a in a mosh pit in terms of just the heaviness and the chaos and the the encircling riffs and stuff. It's just unbelievable unbelievable and I, I i i agree imagine hearing this album in, in, in when you're 20 um how old were you when you first heard this album uh 24 i think and how did that change well it's i mean mate it's one of my favorite albums of all time i i, I just 
I could not believe that I'd, you know, I've said it a, a lot of times, I broke into metal very late. So I've been doing a lot of catch up. I've had to do a lot of catch up, but I, I couldn't believe that I had never heard and listened to Pantera before I heard this, this album. And I think that just as we wrap up the chat here, what it what it did for me was understand where bands that come through the new wave of American heavy metal where they would have come from. For example, mm-hmm. Sam, without Pantera, I think Lamb of God looked different. I think Hatebreed yep. looked different. I think Devil yep. Driver looked different. Yeah. Uh, without without Lamb of God, Hatebreed, Devil Driver, I don't think uh, Five Finger. I mean, I'm not a fan of Five Finger Death Punch, but you know that they are a huge band. That we can't take that away. From Avenged me. Sevenfold. Avenged Sevenfold, another one. Uh, without Five Finger, without um, Hatebreed, Devil Driver, mate. Um, can't imagine Five Finger Death Punch sounding the same. Uh, and mate, without specifically without Hatebreed, I don't think Malevolence sound the same. If if we if we bring it forward to like modern times like really modern within the last couple of years and mate you know what let's bring within the last couple of fucking weeks orbit culture that band that we did as a breaking band i wouldn't say the same either like this album this album has done so much for the future of of heavy metal and a, a great point that you made mate there are elements of this record that can be applied to death metal and deathcore you know this this album just forged away for something that just wasn't there before its inception. How special this album is, is very, very difficult for me to quantify. It's one of my favourite records of all time. Genius from first fucking drum beat to last. I, I think, you know. I, I agree. I think you could even go even further and say that there are, there are, there are bits of turnstile on here. There are even bits of every time I oh, die. Oh. Um, that you can hear. Yeah. <laughs> um... <laughs> At times, in terms of some of the riff work, but um, you can you can you can imagine that this is the thing is that you could drop Pantera in 2020 into the metal world exactly unchanged, right? Exactly as they sounded in 1992, and they would still be a top five hardcore band. Yeah, yeah. In 2020, like um, they're like Malevolence plus steroids. Yeah, Pantera are, and I, I, I you say Malevolence might not sound the same. I don't think Malevolence exists. Possibly, Pantera. possibly, um, b- because because <laughs> the you know the, the transitions and the blues guitar solos over hardcore vocals, um, yeah, that that's that's Pantera in a in a nutshell, and Malevolence are just doing that for for a new generation, and I I really think as well Pantera would thrive in any generation. Yeah, like if if you drop them later, they'd still be dominant. If you drop them earlier, people would think they were aliens, um, yeah. but they were just extraordinary. And I agree. Um, no, no Pantera in the early nineties and metals signature sound from 2000 onwards just does not, does not resonate in the same way. Maybe isn't even constructed in the same way. And there are bigger selling albums in the 1990s with Metallica's black album. There are arguably more famous albums in the 1990s as well with the new metal stuff and, and Korn's debut album and things like that. But I don't think there was a more important album for the longevity and attitude and aggression the metal has always been associated with and vulgar display of power. And that is that is for me why it is so high on this list at number seven. My final point is that I believe that Pantera were the band of the 90s. And I think that this album plays 
a bigger role in that than any other record that I released in that time period. They did an album in 2000, which the name of it has escaped me at the moment. Um, but I, I think Pantera's, Pantera's holding of the mantle of being the band of the 90s doesn't rest solely on this record because Cowboys from Hell is brilliant, Far Beyond Driven is brilliant, and there's a lot of great stuff on the Great Southern Train Kill. But this, this album is... Perfect. Perfect, genius. Uh, uh, you know, you run out of, you, you know, you run out of adjectives, don't you, to describe how fucking amazing it is. You really do. Moving on, Sam. Uh, a new Biffy Clyro yeah. record. <laughs> a new Biffy Clyro record. Uh, a celebration of endings, Sam. It is their ninth studio record, depending on whether you count Balance Not Symmetry, which came out last year. Um, that was a soundtrack to a film. So yeah. let's count it. Let's just say it's the, this is the ninth yeah, studio we, we record. Yeah, we reviewed it, so I'm going to fucking yeah. count it. <laughs> yeah. it's the, not, it this, so this is the ninth studio record. It's out now via 14th floor slash Warner Records. Before we get into you know, the ins and outs of the record, Sam, I, I would like to speak objectively about Biffy Clyro for a moment. Are you capable of that? Uh, yes, um, because <laughs> because you you have said to me, I, I've said to you before, we argue about Biffy Clyro all the time. At <laughs> some point down the line, we will, when, we, we will be starting the Chris versus Sam segment and probably the first episode of that will be on Biffy Clyro. And you right. said, I, I said to you, why don't you like Biffy Clyro? I don't like the vocalist's voice. I don't like Simon Neal's voice. Well, that is a bit like... <laughs> That's a bit like you, like you coming to a random person in the street and being like, oh, we're going to this death metal show uh, tonight. Do you want to come? And they'd be like, well, I'm not really massive on blast beats. And you'd be like, right. well, that, that puts me in a difficult position, doesn't it? Because yeah. that, that is... Uh, Simon Neal's voice isn't the sole driving factor of Biffy Clara, but it's an absolutely massive one. So if you don't like the sound of his voice, that makes it incredibly difficult for you to enjoy Biffy Clara full stop because he is... You know, you know, yes, they all do vocals. They do chime and do gang vocals occasionally. But for the most part, it's, it's Simon Neal and his, and his guitar driving the songs. Yes. So, it is, noticeably so. So, objectively, over one million albums sold, two UK number one albums. They're considered one of the giants of the math rock scene before they gradually became a massive hard rock band, the likes of Foo Fighters. In my opinion... They're the best British rock band that we currently have. Um, objectively, I don't think anyone can claim that Biffy Clyro are not a great band. The same way that objectively, you can't claim that Iron Maiden aren't a great band. No one. See, if, I, if someone tries to say that Iron Maiden aren't a great band, they're either letting their bias rule them, or they're quite, they just don't know what they're talking about. It's as simple as that. Iron, now Iron Maiden aren't massively for me, but I'm fully aware they're one of the greatest bands, metal bands of all time. Now, I'm not saying Biffy Clyro are one of the greatest rock bands of all time, but I am saying that objectively, that, uh, you, you can't deny they're, that they're a great band. Um, and the, the reason why I think that's sad mm. is that nine albums in to Biffy Clyro's career, I'm pressing play on this record and I don't know what to expect. Now, Sam, how many yeah. absolute guaranteed arena level bands that 
are most likely going to be number one with, with, with whatever they release and will headline festivals and will sell out arenas across the country and other countries. How many bands can you say that for? That when you, the, the size they're at now, this multi-platinum selling band, this huge superstar band, that when you press play, you don't know what to expect. Mate, they there, don't fucking exist. There aren't many. There, are, there aren't many. I would agree. Can I, can I counter your first point? Please. Um, you're, 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 you claim that they're a great band because they're a big band are two different things. Um, and you, I, I agree that I can't argue that they're a massive band. I gave more, I gave more in depth than just saying they're big. So they must be great. No, 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 but I, 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 I'll continue. And, and then, then you, then you, you listed that, you listed their success, which is inarguable. It's, it's, it's a state of fact. I, I completely agree that they're absolutely with that. And then you said, then you said it's kind of like saying that Iron Maiden aren't a great band, but Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden's, I think greatness is, is 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 something subjective. Like we've talked about the greatest metal of all time, that's based on sort of influence and cultural impact. Now I don't know enough about Biffy Clyro to be able to measure their cultural impact. But putting it on the same level of Iron Maiden seems a bit exaggerative to me. I mean, yes, it is. I picked Iron Maiden out of the sky. They were the first band that came into my head. Okay. Uh, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps Muse would be would be more apt. Um, yeah, I, I, I understand that. I think that'll be a fair comparison. Um, but do you think, uh, objectively, again, how many bands exist right now because of Biffy Clyro? Do you think? Well, the thing is, Sam, is that no one fucking sounds like him. <laughs> um, and if you listen to if, fuck off, if you listen to <laughs> like Infinity Land. Uh, puzzle missing pieces. There are elements there of like, like kind of like math rock. I think Black Peaks wouldn't exist without Biffy Clyro. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Black Peaks. Um, A little bit, but nothing major. They're very, very good, uh, and the their third, I think their third album uh, is is in the. <laughs> Fuck off! I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> but young bands like uh, Black Peaks, I don't think would would exist without Biffy. Um, especially that mid two thousands Biffy, Infinity Land, and Puzzle era. And then once you get to the twenty tens, mate, they'd become into this fucking behemoth selling rock band that were doing songs like Mountains, which you. Yeah. I don't believe. No, there's. You don't dislike that song. It's impossible. You cannot dislike that song. It is fucking it's not, incredible. It's not. It's not impossible, Chris. Nothing is impossible. Even the word impossible spells are impossible. Mate, I, and I, I would dislike throw that song. You. I would throw you from the highest building in the world. Look, it, oh, look, I could absolutely level with you, um, because uh, my my review coming up on this is actually not horrible, um, because I've managed to be able to separate my own opinion of the vocals onto the actual band itself. These are a great band in terms of their popularity and size and impact on our current generation of music fans. That cannot be argued. That cannot be argued. Yeah. But I, I can't sit there and listen to mountains and convince myself it's good because everybody else <laughs> likes it. <laughs> no, that's I can't. Fine. I can't. Uh, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like you trying to tell me that candle in the wind is the greatest single of all time. Cause it's sold the most. And I'm just like, well, yeah, well, everyone else likes it, Sam. It, it defined a generation. And I'm like, well, it's still fucking Elton John singing about Diana, in it? Like, I'm not interested. And that's just the way I feel about this. I feel, I feel like I'm supposed to like Biffy. 
but I just I just can't. I, I, I find his voice so irritating and abrasive and deliberately exaggerative at times. Uh, and I, I agree that he has got, an, objectively speaking, a decent voice. And that there are points on this, when, uh, on this album that we're going to discuss later, where he is very impressive. But early Biffy, I have disliked their ability to kind of feel like to me a jack of all trades master of none where they don't feel particularly heavy but there's abrasive sections and they they slide between um semi-good riffs and weird transitions that i'm not kind of into and then and then his voice over the top of it just annoys me and and i think repeating an inane metaphor about how you're a mountain somebody else is a sea um, does not in and of itself win me over. You just, I, I mean, if you replace the word mountains and seas with chairs and table, does, does the, the, the concept is still fucking identical. And, uh, and that's you all You are it such is. a twat. Oh my God. I fucking <laughs> no, hate and I just, it. I just sit, I just sit there thinking, I get it. You're different to her. Can you say it in, a, in another way? Can you please say, I'm a circle, you're a triangle. I'm an orange, you're a pear. I get the point. It's so overly simplistic and then mixed in with this like not very impressive collection of riffs and then the, the, they're just sort of bringing, it just feels like Biffy are just Coldplay for rock fans. Oh, rock fans. Sam, fuck off. That's all they are to me. Oh, it just feels like they're, they're, sli- they're sliding between we'll just play enough riffs so we can get to this, um, this, this overly simplified chorus that will make... <laughs> That'll make, that'll make people sort of nod along and hug each other because it's got a simple enough metaphor for people to enjoy. And this album is just like Biffy Claro, Simon McNeil wrote up in the morning and said, let's, um, the, the, the theme of today's album is juxtaposition, uh, north of now south, weird leisure, indoor fireworks. Um, you know, like, you know, two words together that don't make sense with each other. Um, cop syrup, you see, it's clever because it's a play on words. And, and it's like, it just feels like they're just trying to ram how intelligent they are down their throat. But in actuality, it just feels very forced and overly simplistic. And on top of that, I don't like his voice. That being said, that's my personal opinion. That being said, they are objectively a absolutely huge band. And after listening to this album, I can understand why. Although only if I shut myself off and pretend that I'm someone else for 45 minutes. Thank you. That's what I was hoping for when I started the objectivity discussion. Good. As we reached the conclusion we were looking for. <laughs> 15 minutes later. It, did it? 15 minutes <laughs> later. Um, as we get into the celebration of endings, you know, let, let me just kick off Sam. I think this album's fucking great. I, I, I really, really love this. And here's one of the reasons, Sam. I'm going to list you four artists I've written in my notes. I, I'm listening to the album. I'm like, oh, I can hear bits of this in it. Um, you two. Morrissey, Blur, Sleep Token. Okay. And now, mate, and again, this is their ninth album, this. And, and, and they've, they've got this much fucking inner balls and steel to be this fucking creative and doing things this different. Now, mate, realistically, they could have just picked up Only Revolutions, which came out in 2009. Uh, and just redone that here if they wanted to. They could have redone Opposites, uh, which was their double album in 2013, if I remember correctly. But they, they don't. 
this is a, a Biffy Clara album that's completely different to any other Biffy Clara album that you would have heard. For example, now I know that Balance Not Symmetry was a, was a film score, but this sounds nothing like that album. It was only written a year ago. The, the, yeah, the, the musical varieties are very impressive. It, it, it's, it's, the, the, this is a Biffy Claro, a like, you know, a bit like Creeper in a sense of, obviously Creeper have done two records. What I mean is, it's very much a timestamp of the first Creeper record and then the second Creeper record after. They sound like two different bands. And Biffy Claro have been like this kind of chameleon changing colours to fit in with its surroundings for fucking... 15 years uh, and I, I just I think they're fucking so great and I, I think this album is is excellent uh, you know let's if you compare the first two songs listen to the way they play with synths on uh, North of Now South and then how the champ sounds like it's going to be like an early solo ballad before Simon chimes in with the We Are The Source and the lyric gives way to like a really bouncy funk rock riff. Yeah, yeah, changes tone entirely. Completely changes the tone and, and um, contextuality of the record. And, that you know, I loved that. Weird Leisure. Beautiful little picking riff at the start that runs through the track. You've got a big U2-like rock chorus. Um, Simon Neal, the vocalist, is a, again, you don't like his vocals, but I, I do, which is that helps me listening. Uh, does a, <laughs> a beautiful pitch change. Uh, as he's singing, look out the window, see what you're going to have, and I will be the best you've ever had. Um, it's oh. classic. And the <laughs> it's a classic, weird, biffy, climactic <laughs> end as well. Um, as I come to you, there's no way you don't like Tiny Indoor Fireworks as a song. Come on. That is so fucking catchy and the hook in the chorus. You must no, like it's... that song. Yeah, it's a great chorus. It's a great chorus. I, I, I've got lots of positive things to say about this album, legitimately. Um, I, I think, I think, it, I think, I, I'm not a fan of the opening. I think North of No South and the Champ are, are okay, but not, not particularly special. I think it, it's clean and open. It's atmospheric. I understand why it's an opener, uh, but it's. It, the, I didn't think the chorus was compelling enough to, to be used as a first opening. I thought I agree with you. I, I, I think the, 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 the Champ was a nice piano start, and the shift of pace was was like. Uh, was very low key, almost reverse, reverted, and, and sort of mature. Um, the backing vocals made me think a little bit of Scissor Sisters, but that's a side point. Um, but I think you get into like weird leisure and tiny indoor fireworks, and this is where the album starts to improve for me. Um, the slippery riff at the start, I like the change of tones. I think it's interesting. Uh, I'm starting to notice a bit of a pattern in terms of the way that Biffy writes songs on this particular album, where like the lyrical content and like the titles, they love. They seem to love the idea of starting with one thing and then immediately switching to another. And that appears to be, it's almost like a coin and they just like flipping that over and back again. Um, so if you're, if you're into that, I can understand why that, that is compelling and that is interesting. That transitions are fantastic for that. If you're a fan of that. Um, I think that there's a nice guitar lead on, on weird leisure. It feels kind of indie at that moment. I think it's a nice segue. And I think it's the first really, really strong song on the album. I think tiny Duff fireworks is really good. I think the hi hi hi. I think he's a bit cheesy at the start, but yeah, I think it, it, it descends. It descends into a really catchy and big riff that feels pop punky at times. And at this point, I, I agree with you that I'm starting to notice a couple of different genres here, and that, that there's, there's no problem with that whatsoever. Um, it's a great chorus with a nice show of his vocal range. That the falsetto elements he adds in are really nice. Um, the bridge feels a little bit generic, but the the clean guitar that follows it is nice and atmospheric. Uh, the worst type of best possible. Love that song. Um, again, 
a nice musicianship at the top, um, rotate between the staccato stuff and the low key guitar work. There's some lovely piano work here with the guitar. The, the musicianship here is very, very good. The way that it melds with guitar work is really, really nice. The chorus is decent, man. It's thoughtful and pensive, and I catch the balance here really, really nicely. Um, it, you know, it's at the, the, the ending of this song where it mixes a little bit. You just about notice a synth on the guitar notes right at the end, which is quite nice. It allows the chorus to swell and grow without feeling repetitive. Returns to the heavy beginning. It's a, it, it's a really good song, and I think that feels like a compilation of what Biffy have been very good at. Um, for their fans over the last sort of decade and a half, I didn't like space, but I liked the uh, I liked the lyrical work with the space and gravity metaphor. I thought the orchestral passages were lovely. Um, went back to the slippy abrasive Biffy style riff, and again they sort of rotated between those. Um, even the bit where it's like end of your testimony actually reminded me a little bit of System of a Down. You know the way that he speaks, yeah, that yeah, yeah. Singing, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, felt a bit like hypnotized era System of a Down. Um, there's a great guitar and drum section in that song that rotates between loud and soft. Um, the band here, what I will say, is they've got a complete mastery of tempo and vibe. They're able to completely change the way a song feels instantaneously. The musicianship here is very impressive, and they're, they're clearly, I can imagine if you see them live or something like that, they're clearly able to master that ability to just go between loud and soft, almost it orchestral counts. in a way. Yeah. Um, I think it feels punky at the conclusion as well. Um, you mentioned Creeper. This feels like if if Creeper had a father, there was a band. Yeah, yeah. It feels like a more mature version of Creeper, like an older sibling. Do you know what I mean? It, it has that sort of vibe here. They mix between um, sort of like massive choruses and sort of punky moments, like with like with Instant History. Like it's there's an organ at outset. It's pop orientated, but it shifts tempo really, really nicely. Um, and I actually really like that because it felt like it could be a Bringing the Horizon song or even. Or even something sung by like even like a Lady Gaga, like a real pop heavy hitter on instant history. Um, Pink Limit felt like a bit of filler, but there was nice moments. Oh, Pike started off with like this piano, like gaming music. Do you know what I mean? Sort of like just intro before it collapsed into this like acoustic song uh, with a nice motif. Cop Syrup was the the classic Arctic Monkeys punky whistle a rock band song, which I enjoyed. Um, the chorus isn't as big in previous numbers, but the the way that it transitions into that lengthy midsection um, is nice. It's pleasant. It's not overly winning for me, but I think it's atmospheric and it shows their shows their range of a band. So I think overall, I feel this is a, if you're a Biffy Clara fan, I think you love this album. I think that I think it, it, at times it reveals how how good as songwriters they are in terms of the complexity and the songs that they put together. And I think at moments the the songs here that would be um, littered throughout their set list that I think would be very, very good for a festival show um, or big shows in front of their fans, which I presume that they will be playing for um, very, very soon. So again, it's it, they will never be for me. They're not my they're not my type of band. Um, they just they, they don't do they don't do any of the things that I like about bands. They just don't. It's not my it's not their fault. They just don't they just don't suit me. Um, but I can I can listen to this and take off my. Um, hatred tinted glasses and listen to them and and understand why if you're a big rock music fan or a big indie music fan or a big fan of this band in general why you can find yourself encapsulated by this well i really appreciate and what you know that five six minute segment that you've just had sam highlights the reason why i love doing the show with you because oh thank you um, Biffy are a band that you don't like, that you're able to 
take uh, you know take away your bias and listen to the record objectively and anyone listening to this right now you are now fully aware that with me the biffy fan who absolutely loves this record and sam who can't stand biffy but still has the ability to say you know what there's loads of good stuff on this objectively I don't really think there's any bigger seal of approval I could I could give this record. Worst Todd, Best Possible for Me is absolutely fucking brilliant. I adore how... I mean, I really like um, Tiny, Tiny Indoor Fireworks. I think that song is absolutely fucking brilliant. Um, yeah. But I, I absolutely love how Worst Todd, Best Possible follows Tiny Indoor Fireworks but starts in such a completely different way. It's like a, a really like fuzz rock, blurry rock, the way worst type of best possible starts, that really like fuzzed up riff, which is a complete, complete juxtaposition to how Tiny Indoor Fireworks ends. Um, the way they build the chorus set piece around Simon is something you'd expect to see from like Morrissey, which where I, which where I got that from. Uh, I love Space, brilliant ballad. Biffy is so good at writing those solo ballads for Simon. Uh, Little Hospitals and Accident with an Emergency from Opposites comes to mind. And they build synths on that song, just like Sleep Token would um, if it was a Sleep Token track where the vessel is taking the lead, as he or, or usually does. Um, end of, I'm not a massive fan of. Uh, you know, quite reminiscent of Blur and like indie rock. Uh, not really for me. Uh, Instant History. It's interesting, actually, that you picked up. Oh, I, I thought that song was really good. So you picture Lady Gaga sing that kind of thing. That was... Mm. That is absolutely a song that you can tell is specifically written for radio. And that's quite, un- that's quite unlike Biffy. So it's, for me, it's not a bad song by any stretch, but there's usually so much more dynamism to Biffy Clyro than what is within that track. So, yeah, that one's fine, but it, I was, I'm not a massive for it. Um, that's that's one of those songs where hardcore Biffy fans like yourself sort of cringe a little yeah, bit and think, come yeah. on, lads, is it one of those? But, like, random yeah. rock fans are like, oh, that's quite catchy. That's sort Exactly. Of thing. Mate, you've, you've got it absolutely nailed down to a T there because as someone who's listened to Biffy Clyro for a, a fair few years now, I know of what they're capable of. And what they're capable of is shown on this record in great detail. But when you get to instant history, like I said, they've usually got so much more uh, creativity, genius and dynamism to them that that does seem unusually bland for Biffy. Mm. Opaque's gorgeous. Shows off dexterity of the band and what's with the dexterity is one of the reasons why I absolutely love them. And then you close out the record with Cop Syrup. It's got fucking blast beats on it. <laughs> and fucking um, screams from Simon. And yeah. that's, that's a massive throwback to their old stuff. That is, I didn't see that coming at all and one of the things that I think that Biffy Clyro are a great band for is they the transition they went on between like weirdo fucking uh, math rock band that no one can figure out into oh we write massive rock choruses now and we fill arenas while still catering to all audiences is such a difficult difficult thing to pull off and bands fail at it all the time but biffy did it absolutely fucking phenomenally uh, i absolutely love this record it's probably my favorite biffy record since out in revolutions though i do really 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 like opposites as well so i'm not 100 I, I, i'd have to listen to both again a few times there but i really love this i'm <laughs> thankful and glad that you were able to listen to this uh, with rose tinted glasses on um, and 
to close out, mate, I, I think that, you know, if there's going to be a band that headlines British rock for another few years, <clears throat> I don't see any reason why Biffy Clyro shouldn't continue being that. I, I fucking love them. Fair enough. They're, they're an absolutely massive group and they're similar to the, the conversation we're having about Pantera that the, the rock music was kind of looking for a mantle taker really um, this decade to really push, push the genre away from the hanging around and waiting and hoping that Oasis retour um, <laughs> re again in terms of like big British rock bands or um, waiting for Arctic Monkeys to sort of release another album or Mumford and Sons or something like that. So I think for the rock fans such as yourself, Biffy Claro, I imagine were a, a, a somewhat of a saviour when they, uh, when they released, when they released puzzles and, and, and really sort of became the massive, massive group that, um, that became with sort of golden rule and mountain and all that sort of stuff that really transcended and changed their career. Well, actually, sorry, um, just to piggyback off a point that you made there, Arctic mm. Monkeys record in 2018, uh, Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, I never listened to it, but it seemed like it was massively alienating for the fan base. Uh, it's you know from everything that I saw, yeah. Every single person that I've asked about this that record has said it's fucking terrible. Now I've never listened to it, <clears throat> so I've never listened to it. So so I can't I can't say a personal opinion there. But literally everyone of us like it's fucking shit. So now that is Arctic Monkeys, and that what from what I've been told, it sounds completely different to AM, which came out in 2013. So that is Arctic Monkeys completely changing their style and supposedly not doing it well. Compare that to Biffy, who've changed their style about fucking seven times in their career, and they've continued to be massive and retain the fan base. And I think more than anything else, that highlights what what and why they're a great band. I think I think yeah, I think what I will what I will say is that for me as a listener I can I can still because I'll be honest with you, if I I, I wasn't trying to like this so you'd you'd thank me or anything like that. Oh, no, like, I oh, no. I'd, I'd, like if I thought this was a bad album, like I'd I'd have I'd have I'd have I'd have I'd have gone for it anyway. Um, but you can see how well the songs have been put together, how talented they are as songwriters. And if you put Biffy's band behind Vessel from Sleep Token, I think I'd be I think I'd be telling you this is one of the great albums of the 21st century. Right. Um, just simply because. Um, it is it is so it is so varied and the musicianship is so very impressive. And if you take if you take away the main element that I dislike about Biffy, which is some of the lyrics and some of the vocal styles and things like that, and replace that with a vocalist that I adore, then I, I might be softer towards the whole experience anyway, because you can just hear um, you can hear the musicianship and you can hear the the the, the structure and the layering of the songs. Um, I think. I think I agree with your original point as well. You look at U2, uh, a band that have that have changed for the good and for the for the worse at different points in their entire life, entire careers, and not necessarily retained their fans um, in the same way that Biffy have. It is it is an impressive thing for them, and I think they will continue to to headline shows and play massive festivals off the back of albums like this. And you can hear two or three songs that in this album that will be staples of their set for the next couple of years i obviously can't comment on where this album would sit in comparison to their other ones but what i will say is for a listener such as myself uh, that was going in and expecting to 
to dislike <laughs> every moment with this album. <laughs> this is the least. This is the least abrasive Biffy album. This is the least stress a Biffy album has put me under. I've ever heard in my life. Well, I will, will say that. Um, and I've listened to um, the last two prior to this, and I've heard enough of their prior back catalogue to have made the opinion that I've formed. So this one, listened to from start to finish, didn't didn't hurt me as much. So I feel, I feel that this is the... I don't know about you. I feel that this is one of the most um, relatable and easily accessible Biffy albums it is. in quite some time. Yeah. And I think if if... If you're even making a hardened um, Biffy hater, so to speak, such as myself, even admit that there are lots of positive points to the album, that to the point where if this album was like number one next week, I wouldn't begrudge it. Um, then I imagine that this could probably open the door for a new subsection of fans. And I imagine that their download festival set next summer is going to be quite successful based on the way that this album sounds. And that's going to bring episode 46 of the Noise Podcast to an end. Uh, if you're still with us, thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed me and Sam going into detail on Pantera's vulgar display of power and then a celebration of endings by Biffy Clyro. Uh, we are going to be back next Tuesday. The Chris Meets section will return and I am scheduled to have uh, a Chris Meets with Tristan Pratt, who is a publicist for the Noise Cartel, uh, a PR company that have helped us as a website, noise, and specifically as a podcast, uh, noise podcast, uh, to no end, uh, our great deal to Tristan and Don I over at uh, the Noise Cartel and everyone that works there. So, going to be a Chris Meets with Tristan next week. I'm not sure which bands we're going to be reviewing or doing breaking artists for next week, but I'll have a look, see what's coming out, and uh, we'll pick what I think is going to be an interesting chat for me and Sam. Again, thank you so much for listening. Check out Stereo Brain Records, who are our sponsor. Give us a like and subscription wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We really appreciate it. We're going to be back next Tuesday. We love you. Bye.